Welcome to The Voice of Retail. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc. This podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. Frank Levin has devoted much of his professional life to working in and understanding the Asian market. From top-level roles in U.S. government, including Undersecretary of Commerce, Ambassador to Singapore, and other White House appointments, to much time in the private sector, with top roles such as Chairman of Public Affairs, Asia-Pacific for Edelman. All of which means, now as the chairman and founder of Export Now, a Chinese solution company for international brands, Frank has a unique and highly informed perspective on the China market, consumers, and how to understand the vast opportunities e-commerce offers. Frank joins me again on The Voice of Retail to catch me up on the latest developments on the ground in China and talk about his new book, The Smart Business Guide to China E-Commerce. Most brands will tell you, you know, e-commerce is now 10% of our total sales or 15% and it's growing faster than our traditional sales channels. So most brands, you know, have caught right. caught religion on this point. But yeah. but even though they know China's big and China retail market's big and China's digital, they say, yeah, but it's not inviting, it's intimidating. Let's listen in now. Frank, welcome back to the Voice of Retail podcast. How are you doing, my friend? Michael, it's great to be back with you, if only uh, digitally. I can't wait till we're allowed to travel again, but it's good just to connect on the air. Yeah, no no kidding. I was thinking about the last time you and I spoke was really early in the COVID era. I think there was even a different administration in the office in, in the U.S. So many things, a few things have happened, to say the least, since we last spoke. So it's a real great opportunity to, to catch up. Let's start. Let's start at the beginning. So for those listeners who maybe haven't heard uh, our other episodes, and I encourage them to page back because it's kind of uh, interesting, our perspectives, even in the in the very early days of COVID and business and talking about China. Let's start, as I said at the beginning, tell us about yourself, tell us about Export Now, and tell us about what you do there. Sure. Thanks, Michael. Look, Export Now is a uh, U.S. company, and what we do is we run e-commerce stores in China for international brands, primarily North American brands, as you might expect, but but we work with French brands, Korean brands, Australian brands, others. And what we can do is more or less replicate any consumer website in Canada, say we can replicate that in China, meaning we'll do inbound logistics, we'll do product labeling and testing, we'll do all store operations, we'll do the competitive analysis, we'll do social media, live streaming, SEO, SEM work, manage last mile delivery, and we'll do financial settlement and remit uh, back your currency of your choice back to your market. So, uh, and, and, and give you IT integration on top of that. So you can sit at your laptop mm-hmm. in Ontario and you can run your T-Mall store, right? So it's just a great force multiplier for merchants and brands. So, and, and tell me about, um, as you do that, your background, let's talk about your background and how you came to do this work. Such a, a length of service in the Southeast Asia corridor, so to speak, if I can say it that way. But uh, tell us a little bit about that so people yeah, have that kind uh, of reference. Uh, yeah, well, 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 heavily, heavily East Asia-oriented uh, for most of my professional career. But I've spent about half my career in government, about half in private sector, but most of it Asia-facing or China-facing, as you know. Mm. Uh, and in government, my last two positions was I was U.S. ambassador to Singapore under George W. Bush and subsequently his Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade, so in charge of uh, trade promotion activity, helping businesses go to new market, supporting all the commercial consulars around the world were uh, folks who reported to me, uh, trade negotiations, heavy, heavy China focus uh, mm-hmm. at that time as r- remains today. But 
uh, and, and in the private sector, jobs somewhat similar. I worked at Citibank. I worked at Bank of America. I worked in public affairs for Edelman. Mm-hmm. But, but all of that work tended to be Asia-facing or China-facing work, meaning the common thread in this is just problem-solving for international businesses in Asia or the China market and helping folks get into the market, helping folks win. Well, let's talk about the China market and the China consumer uh, when we first were speaking about impact. I mean, at that point, you know, if we think or turn our minds to a China that was just coming out of severe lockdowns, they seem to have had the right formula, at least for the time. How has this all affected the Chinese consumer? There's obviously less travel. We don't see them here in Canada. They're not traveling internationally, but lots of brands are going there. Lots of people are Ring, picking, you know, ringing your phone number. How has the Chinese consumer reacted to all this? Well, well what, the single, what's your observation? Yeah, the single most important phenomenon of the last two years has been an ongoing uh, or an accelerated swing to digital. Meaning, China is the most digital retail market in the world, but that was pre-pandemic. It was, yeah, yeah. But but now, e-commerce has now passed over fifty percent of all retail wow. spent in it was China. Like Thirty-five was it? Thirty-five percent. When we so were last just talking, like years ago, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, by the yeah. way, thirty-five percent was huge. <laughs> so, yeah, right, so, right. So, so fifty. Not to throw that number out there isn't like right. ah, I was just thirty-five percent, right? Right, right. And, and and so when you think of it, saying, look, there's a percentage of this country that is so rural or so uh, poor, so remote that they really not digitally oriented. There's ten or twenty percent of the country that is that. You know, they're very elderly or they're just mm-hmm. they're just not computer oriented. Uh, uh, so, and, and then there's a percentage of retail sales, which are spur of the moment or emergencies, whether it's burned out light bulbs or a pack of cigarettes, right? I mean, the point is you're never going to get a hundred percent. You're not even going to get right. 80 or 90%. So you're saying, boy, if you're over 50%, you've got extraordinary penetration yeah. that yeah, digital yeah. is now the shopping channel of choice for yeah. any Chinese person, say younger than 40, that's their preferred distribution channel. Well, I think we say the name. And the country named China so often we forget how vast geographically, how different geographically the parts are and how there's a billion people. Like when we talk about sure. these numbers, sure. they all kind of get a little bit, they almost, they almost like, oh, 50%. It's 50% is huge, oh, right? Yeah, I, I think, yeah. it, you know, China's economy is now number one or number two in the world. I mean, we're talking, you know, trillions and trillions. Yeah, of, the base, the base is, is massive. Well, I'd give you one statistic. The main uh, e-commerce uh, platform in China, uh, Alibaba, the main uh, e-commerce company, is three times the GMV of Amazon. So mm. three times as much. I mean, that's a huge number. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, so yeah. you've got a great base there for if you're a foreign merchant. Well, let's talk about China in a slightly different context. You're you're so connected to the region retailers, and you know, even as I talk to them today, supply chain is is number one. I, I can't imagine a time I, I when more consumers in the world didn't know the term supply chain. <laughs> they didn't even think about that stuff. It just showed up on their shelves like on a regular basis. But of course, a lot of product is made uh, in China. And and I was thinking that, um, you know, as we, we suffer through, as we all suffer through these, these port shutdowns when they have, you know, single or small outbreaks, that Chinese approach to handling the pandemic has been a kind of a zero tolerance mm. policy. Now, Delta seems to be messing with that a little bit. Um, but here we sit in North America and we watch, you know, boats that don't leave and congestion and ports that shut down. As, as you talk to your, your team on the ground and, and as you meet with people, do you, do you sense any kind of movement on a policy level that would start to change that direction to be more, I don't want to say live with the virus, but a little more 
let's not shut down. There must be pressure on their economy as well, right? Like, well, how are you? How are you seeing that? I, I think Chinese look. It's a different political system in China. It's a it's a you know single party government there, a top down system, and it's got a Confucian ethos as well, meaning. Uh, unlike a lot of Western societies where you celebrate individualism or flamboyance mm. or the, the outlier in China, you'd say, look, Confucianism sort of dictates that your obligation, your civic role is that you have to fit into a broader uh, system. And, and right. certainly in the middle of a pandemic, that point is loud and clear to say you've got a social responsibility to always wear your mask, to be vaccinated, play by the rules. So you had a high degree of compliance in China. And as you know, U.S. is sort of famously, (laughs) uh, you know, to be polite, call it independent minded, but people will just have their own opinions and they just do kind of do what they want to do. So, uh, you know, which is really helpful. And sometimes it's probably not helpful in the middle of a pandemic. So, so the point is, I think what you had was China getting its arms around the transmission side of the problem very quickly because people just behaved. I'll tell you one little story from our office. We've got a team of about Mm. 50 people in Shanghai, but one person in our our team got a phone call uh, from the health authorities at home saying, hey, uh, we're, we're going through the supermarket and somebody at the supermarket today was uh, determined to be positive, COVID positive. Mm-hmm. So we're going through every single person who paid and visited that supermarket because you have to check in. You have, a, you have a QR code. You have to check in every place you go, every merchant you go to. We're, we're quarantining every single person who was at that supermarket today for two weeks. So you are now under two <laughs> weeks quarantine. Right. And you say, wow, that is a strong armed government, no doubt. Mm. But boy, it's going to have a, a effectiveness as well. I mean, if yeah. you do that, if you're calling everybody who ever comes in contact with anybody who ever had it, you will, you will really stop any kind of transmission. What would they call it in England when they had, they called it a pingdemic when, because uh, they had their, their phones would ping whenever you uh, had some kind of exposure. They called it the pingdemic. Oh, that's funny. Brits are always very clever with their descriptions. Yeah. Um, so let's now let's listen. You've got a new book. Uh, this is exciting yeah. to me. Um, uh, it is the Smart Business Guide to China e-commerce. So tell tell me about it. Uh, why, yeah. Who did you write it for? And the well, approach you took uh, tackling such a huge that's a big remit, so to speak. It's a big so, remit. But well, look, here's what we've seen. That uh, look, every business, every brand understands e-commerce. And they get it. And they, and they, in fact, most brands will tell you, you know, e-commerce is now 10% of our total sales or 15% and it's growing faster than our traditional sales channels. So most brands, you know, have caught, right. caught religion on this point. But, yeah. but even though they know China's big and China retail market's big and China's digital, they say, yeah, but it's not inviting. It's intimidating because I've mm-hmm. got no China familiarity. There's huge language and cultural gaps. It is a different political system. Uh, you know, and I don't, I don't have any way to get involved with it or to understand it. Right. So this book is written for that audience, uh, brands and consumer groups and merchants who say, I, I want to try to develop an understanding of this market and see if I can do something there, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to fly to China for a week and try to, you know, understand the Figured market. It, is yeah. there some, is there, even if, even if that would work, like being uh, on the ground, uh, it feels like being on the ground in, in a country like China, like many others, you, you're not going to figure much out. You're really, you need more than that, right? I, I think so. Than, I think it yeah. can be misleading. You'll say, well, on the streets, I saw X, Y, and Z, but you say, yeah, but look at sales statistics and you'll see something uh, different maybe than what mm-hmm. you see on the streets. So, uh, 
So this is just an intro book to help people become familiar with the, the market, the techniques, the platforms, the do's and don'ts. In what ways are the Chinese consumers different than, say, the Canadian consumers? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. even if you hold open, even if you hold even for income levels, uh, you know, do you see differences in what the Chinese consumer wants and what the Canadian consumer wants? In other words, can you take a nicely performing Canadian product and how would you try to figure out or model whether it would work or not in China is sort of the the core commercial question that every Mm. merchant faces. Some products you can take on the road and are kind of global in nature and really do well. And other products have trouble escaping their home market. Interesting. So would you, would you, did you structure it like a how to book? Okay. Here's the market. Um, understand the consumer, understand the processes because, you know, retail is very different in China, right? As, as we've talked previously, it didn't evolve from stores to digital. It really, in many ways, was digital first in a, in a big way. Yeah. Obviously, with, you know, even in the before time, you were 20, 35, 40% now, now north of that. So can I, can I take that book and say, listen, I, I think there's an opportunity for my business in China. I want to understand it a bit better. And then I want to understand how to go after it because that's complex or, or just different, right? I mean, every country's different, right. but they're more different. Or is, is that, was that your approach as well? Well, that's exactly what the approach is. It's, uh, you know, you almost call it an airport book or the airplane book because mm-hmm. it's 190 pages. It's going to be in the airport bookshop. <laughs> I got a right? long flight to China. I better figure it out before I get there. Well, but even, even a domestic flight. <laughs> I mean, the point is you're saying, look, I don't need to get a PhD in China e-commerce. I don't even want a mm-hmm. master's degree in it, but I want to spend a few hours thinking about it. And, I, and I've got to think through the next steps. And what we've seen right. is brands can be very successful in growing domestically, sort of through organic growth. This brand started 50 years ago. It, maybe mm-hmm. it was mom and pop. Maybe a bigger group owns it now. Now they're nationally distributed. Maybe they're even North America distribution. So it's a very nice success story. But, boy, they've never grown outside of organic growth. So this would be kind of a leap for saying, look, we, we, we get it. We get that the market's huge and we can access it. But, but it's a leap for us. We've never, hmm. you know, we've never gone to Mexico. Yeah. We've never gone to France and we've never gone to China. So how do we yeah. make that journey? Well, it's one of the things, uh, it's one of the reasons Canada benefits from a big international presence is because we're kind of U.S. light, right? You can come to Canada. It's different enough that you got to figure it out. So you kind of develop some muscle memory on figuring out different systems, but it's familiar enough. I guess, sure. you know, I was thinking of your book and, and kind of paging through and thinking it's kind of like, you know, if nothing else, and there's a lot of else, at least I'll know the questions to ask. And that's a really good starting point for a yeah, market like yeah, China. Yeah, it right? gives you an analytical framework, and mm-hmm. uh, you're not going to solve. Look, it's almost like saying a 190-page book on how to sell on Amazon. You, you <laughs> won't have all the answers, but at least you'll be right. better off than where you were. And you could start, you could do some toe-in-the-water activities uh, you know, I tell, look, cause I give this presentation on, on, on thinking about Canada all the time to American groups. I say, listen, guys, uh, here's an idea. Take a long weekend and go to Toronto, mm-hmm. go to your nearest big city, spend your, uh, a, a day or two going through supermarkets mm-hmm. with your smart camera and search the aisle where your product would be and look at the price points and the SKUs and the sizes and the presentations of all- on the shelf. Yeah. yeah that's so tough, at least yeah. you'll come back with a decent, you know, competitive analysis and you'll, be able to present this to your leadership team and say, can we make a go of this or not? Well, imagine uh, the listeners have taken that trip to China for the weekend. And what would you say the one or two, three things that they need to understand to win in China? Give us a, give us a, a sense of that. As well, a, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what's really interesting to me is uh, it, it's a digital country, China, and you need to have a digital uh, DNA. 
and some brands and some companies do that. They communicate beautifully uh, online through through uh, social media, through KOLs, through chat rooms. They have a whole team that does that. And some brands are not able or they don't have that pedigree. They've never mm-hmm. really done it. Cosmetic brands, beauty brands tend to do it extremely well. Uh, baby and mommy brands tend to do it extremely well, meaning the customer wants to be part of a conversation. The customer does not just want to see a static ad on TV or in the newspapers, but wants to be able to comment or criticize or ask a question or give an exception or something. And some, so I'd say a brand has to be able to develop that digital communication approach if you want to be successful in China. And that Mm. some people have it. Some people have to make that journey. The other point I'd mention is you can be dominant in your home market. You can be very successful in Canada and be a long time uh, leading brand, lead your segment. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be dominant in any new market, right? Because right, you right. might be dominant because you're, you were first mover or you had best mm-hmm. distribution or other kind of structural reasons, but all of that washes out to sea. So the real point is, can you, you're, you're going to a new planet. You're, you're, you're parachuting down to right. Neptune here and you have to be able to court the consumer. Again, some brands mm-hmm. are, are able to do that. They can explain themselves well. They can provide a description, have a discussion. And some brands say, well, look, everybody loves me. I don't have to do it. And mm-hmm. you say, boy, you know, everybody loved you back home because you've been around right. for 50 years. Right. So, so some, some brands are natural communicators and we'd say every successful brand has a good narrative. So I would say those two being, being digitally capable and being able to court the consumer are just huge requirements for success in the China market. And I'd go back to a point I made earlier, uh, Michael, if I may, which is to say, look, uh, you can pretty easily look at the competitive map. You might be in a segment that is doing very well, uh, but you could say, I can compete effectively. Those are the top two or three brands in the segment. I can do as well as those top two or three. So that's a great hmm. little discovery. You might be in a segment that's kind of a small but but you're strong enough in that segment that you're okay with it. Meaning, meaning you, you might have make up some numbers. You might have twenty percent market share in your home market, and you might have one percent market share in China. But you could be quite profitable with one percent right. if it's a digital one percent of, of a massive market. Well, it's yeah, a yeah, huge right. base. It's a huge base yeah. anyhow, and 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 it's all a digital strategy. So you say, look, mm-hmm. I don't have to pay a distributor. I don't have to pay three or four intermediaries. Right. Uh, so I actually have a greater profit margin mm-hmm. in China than I've got in my home market. Because it's pure play digital. You talk to a lot of businesses, brands, DTC retailers that are looking at China. What are, what are the things they most often get wrong about the market? Most the, the most number, often thing. Yeah, I can tell you. I can tell you the number one mistake is what we call the mistake of nothing or the sin of nothing. Meaning, they go to China, they go to a new market, and they change nothing. They don't change their mm. pricing. Mm. They don't change their product slate. They don't change their messaging. They, they, what they're really saying, their entire experience is domestic growth, domestic expansion. That's all they know. And they've been very successful at it. So they go to a new market and they say, well, we'll just keep, we just, let's bring that record from the old phonograph. We'll play it again. And you say, well, that, that might be 90% right or 80% right, but there might be some adjustments you want to make about your messaging or your brand position, or you might find a different competitive environment. So it's worth doing a little diagnostics and don't simply say, everybody loved me back home. Therefore, I'm going to do the same dance and same music in China and everybody's going to love me again. So it's worth doing a little bit of diagnostics and making some adjustments on. So for example, we found some minor points that if the Chinese consumer uses your product less frequently than say the Canadian consumer, that might be purchasing power or just might be cultural. They like it, but they not, they don't use it as much. Then you need to look at selling 
smaller portion sizes. Don't sell mm. these giant mm. jugs of the product because people yeah. say, I'm not, that's kind of uninviting to buy a, well, and you see this dramatically in products like coffee, where per capita coffee consumption in China is significantly lower, and you're much mm. likely to see the one-pound canisters and these oversized containers, but you're much more likely to see the signal-serving cachet, mm. sachets, I should say, and, and, the, yeah, yeah. and the instant coffee mixes are a lot more common because the office is less likely to have a coffee maker and your home is less likely to have a coffee maker. And you might only be serving coffee once a week or twice a month as opposed to serving tea every day. That's not because they don't like it. It's just, as you said, the consumption patterns are just different, right? Yes. You know, it's that, that sin of omission, I guess, or less than commission, I suppose. Um, you know, I can't have you on the microphone. This isn't a political podcast, but let's put something in the context of political economy. So, you know, in our last conversation, we were saying, you know, how big is this going to be and what's its global impact? And you're saying, listen, this is not, this is going to be a major event. I think we maybe undersold it a little bit. Um, you know, what, as you look forward with your vast experience around global political eco- economics, I see, you know, do you see what I see? Do I see the ascension of China, but some of their vaccine policy is, is uh, you know, not as effective as maybe they like, but yet at the same time, Lots of things are happening around the world. Uh, China's economy continues to grow. Their influence continues to grow. Uh, how do you how do you see this all settling out? What do you think has changed, if anything? Maybe this is all going to happen anyway. But do you think this has been accelerated by COVID, or has anything fundamentally changed that retailers kind of need to think through? Because you know they're global supply chain actors in in setting a context for what you see yeah. as changes uh, well, in the global footprint. Yeah, no, this is a great question. And I'd say, look, there's really sort of two parts of it. Sometimes uh, domestic brands, when they go international to any extent, if they go to the UK or a Canadian brand goes to the US, you say, look, you have to look at customs issues, uh, uh, currency. I mean, these might be all kind of predictable or kind of minor if it's to to pound sterling or US dollars, but still you've got to have somebody there thinking about it. And the further out you go in that spectrum from, uh, you know, more homogeneous markets Mm. to more distant markets, the more you've got to think. So China's more at the farther end of that to say, look, we know right. less about it, less familiarity, different political system. And so it's, it, it's, it's more intimidating. And uh, it represents, I think, to some brands, more of a risk factor because they just don't deal with it as well. What I'd say is this. <clears throat> um, what we advise people to do in China, again, this backs into e-commerce, is don't hesitate to use an incremental model. Meaning you mm. might you might normally say I invest thirty million dollars in a new market, I build out my warehouses, I buy a fleet of trucks. I say, well, there's no need to do that. You don't need to <laughs> you can lease warehouses, you can contract out for trucks, you know, so go for an asset light or an incremental model and and you know, build it out year by year as your sales grow, as you develop familiarity with it. But there's no need to go all in or with all both feet. I think yeah, I think in some respects e-commerce is really your best friend because e-commerce it's almost a 19th century business model, meaning you ship in <laughs> once a month, mm. you know, several pallets or, or a container of goods and you collect the money. And next month you ship it in again. So you say, look, e-commerce means you can sell into China without ever setting up a legal entity in China, without ever mm. having to hire personnel in China, without ever having to visit China. So if business goes up 10% next month, you say, that's fabulous. I'm happy to supply 10% more. And if business is off 10%, you say, well, I don't like that. It's 10% less revenue, but I'm not at any kind of risk. I'm not at systemic risk for not right. making a debt payment or going underwater or foolishly over-investing. So I can, I can ride that wave, that volatility without heartburn. Hmm. 
Well, it's a complex complex market. I can't think of anyone better to explain it to the retail community. The book is the Smart Business Guide to China e-commerce. Now, I think it's I saw it on uh, I think I saw it on Amazon October twenty seventh. So it's not released, no, no, it's up, but you can. It's up now. It's up now. It's up now. now. Kindles Kindles got it out. Hard hardbacks up and uh, yep. And please go take a look. Absolutely. All right. So the book is a smart business guide to China e-commerce. It's available now and you've got such great experience. How can people get in touch and learn more about all the great things you're working on? Michael, probably the best way is either exportnow.com, as you said, or I'm on LinkedIn as Frank Lavin uh, at Export Now. So I'd be delighted. Love, we love talking to brands. We love talking to retailers. We love talking about China. And Michael, love talking with you about all this stuff too. Yeah, listen, and what the listeners don't know is you and I talk for about half an hour about all this fun <laughs> stuff, and even before we hit record. So uh, maybe I should have recorded that too, but it was all kind of a wide ranging. Such a great conversation, Frank. I really appreciate your insights and, and congratulations on on uh, the launch of the book and, and uh, wish you continued success in your business. And, and uh, we'll put links to the book and your contact information in the show notes and all that great stuff. And listen, I look forward to uh, touching base with you again as we continue to figure all this stuff out. I can't think of anyone better. And I really appreciate you coming back on to the Voice of Retail podcast. Michael, thanks so much for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure to connect with you again. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of the Voice of Retail. Be sure and follow the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy podcasts so you don't miss out on the latest episodes, industry news, and insights. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a rating review as it really helps us grow so that we continue to get amazing guests onto the show. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc, president of Emmy LeBlanc Company, Inc. And if you're looking for more content or want to chat, follow me on LinkedIn or visit my website at emmyleblanc.co. Until next time, stay safe, have a great week.